Would you pray with me, please? Father, we are so grateful to you for your word. We are so grateful to you, Father, for your word. Your word gives us direction. Your word corrects us. Your word guides us. Your word strengthens us. Your word gives us life. And we would have no way of knowing you, knowing your will, knowing ourselves, unless you had caused your word to be written. And we receive it with open hearts, and we receive you. Father, for this is your word to us, your people. Speak to us today. Speak to us, Father, and be glorified in us and through us. We exalt you and praise you and lift you up forever and ever. Amen. You may be seated, please. Putting things into context a little bit, and I'm going to be uh, I'm going to be speaking uh, primarily from the gospel passage, which uh, was just read from uh, the 12th chapter of Luke. We have been in Luke all through this year. Uh, this is the year where we focus on the gospel of Luke, and so I would invite you to open your Bibles to the 12th chapter of the Gospel of Luke, or to use the insert, which is in your bulletins, so that you can follow with me. And not just follow with me, I always encourage all of you to make sure that you check me. Make sure that what I preach and what I teach is biblical, and it is what the Lord has intended for us to receive. I'll say something that uh, may surprise you all, but I am not fallible. Or I may be fallible, rather. I am fallible. Uh, so check things out, okay? Don't ever, don't ever take whatever it is said without you checking it against the Word of God. It is, it is extremely important. So, so open your Bibles to the 12th chapter according to St. Luke. Now, one of the things we know, and I think it's important that we recognize, because I think it's very, very important, is that we have been following in Luke the journey of Jesus from Galilee all the way down his going toward Jerusalem. Uh, his ministry in Galilee is finished. I have taught you that most of the miracles of Jesus happen in the area of Galilee, in Capernaum, Nazareth, Bethsaida, and some of the other cities there, all in the north. A lot of the healings, a lot of the freedom of demon possessions, 
a lot of the teachings that Jesus gave were all done in the northern part. He occasionally did visit Jerusalem in the south, but most of his ministry was done in the north. Well, that ministry is finished. The transfiguration has taken place where he encountered Moses and Elijah, and he received pretty much the word that says, it is, it is now time to go down to Jerusalem. And so we have been following the Gospel of Luke. We have been following that journey with Jesus from, from uh, Galilee all the way down to Jerusalem. But I think it's extremely important that we consider that Jesus is going to Jerusalem to die. Jesus knows it, even if no one else does. Jesus knows that what is waiting for him in Jerusalem is death, sacrifice, and in fact, as the ministry of Jesus had finished in Galilee, in Galilee, he still needed to finish the whole mission of God, and that would not be finished until the cross. He had come into the world to die. He had come into the world to save sinners by giving his blood and giving his life in payment for all the sins of the world. And one of the things that is very, very important to me in understanding this passage is to understand that Jesus has left all of the glories of heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father, command over angels and archangels, the author and the receiver of all praise, all honor, all glory in the heavens. He leaves all of that behind in order to become a human being in order to become man, in order to take on flesh with all of the limitations and all of the pains and all of the sorrows that come with being human. Jesus comes to join us in our journey. And, and it's so important to me that you understand that because Jesus who is rich in everything becomes poor in everything even unto the cross. And that is important that you get it, because in a way, Jesus is turning his back on the heavenly glories and riches to take on our mortality. And to me, that's important that you get it from the very beginning, because that is Jesus' heart, Jesus' attitude, and yet he encounters two brothers who are so attached to the earthly that they start fighting with each other over an inheritance. The God of glory that became poor is being approached by these two brothers about, tell my brother to give me my part of my inheritance here on earth. They're so earthbound by money and possessions and power, and they want Jesus to resolve that issue between them. The one that left everything to become poor is dealing with these two guys who want to become rich. 
And I think that's so important that I understand the process that Jesus is going through. Jesus sets heaven as his priority. Jesus sets the will of his Father as his priority. All other things are peripheral to him. We know that in that journey that, that is from Galilee to Jerusalem, Jesus comes to some of the cities of Samaria, and the Samaritans would not receive him. The Samaritans would not receive him, so Jesus has to turn. Instead of coming straight down to Judea, he has to veer to the left, to the east side of the Jordan River, and he comes down on the eastern side until he gets to about Jericho, and then in Jericho he comes back west, and then from there he goes into Jerusalem. In that journey from where he veered to where he enters back into Judea, Jesus meets a number of people. And I'll just remind you of some of these people he, he meets in that journey. One of them, you remember, was an attorney. And that lawyer approaches Jesus in order to test him. Remember that? I preached on that a few weeks ago. In order to test him to see how they, he can catch Jesus at saying something wrong so that he can later accuse him and bring him to trial. And his question is, Lord, how can I inherit eternal life? And Jesus basically says, you have to love your brother as yourself. That's how you do it. And he tells the parable of the Good Samaritan. Remember that? Remember, please, that Jesus is the original Good Samaritan. That Jesus is the one who gives everything for the brokenness of us all. That we are the ones wounded in this life. We are the ones thrown away by so many things, so many people. And we choose sometimes the wrong direction in our lives that causes a lot of pain. And Jesus is the good Samaritan that gives his blood, gives his time, gives his glory, gives everything that we may be healed from those brokenness. From there he continues and he goes to the house of a, a couple of sisters, Mary and Martha. Remember that? Martha so preoccupied with earthly things, uh, preoccupied with, uh, with providing the best, preoccupied with how to look good according to earth standards. Mary, on the other hand, is so Jesus-focused that she sits by his feet, just absorbing and receiving everything that comes out of the mouth of the Lord. She, I would say, is, is Jesus' focus. I don't think Martha was not, but of the two of them, Mary certainly shows a, a, a direction toward Jesus that, that would never be taken from her, which is to be an encouragement for, for all of us. From there, he continues, and some of his disciples come to him, and they say to him, Lord, teach us to pray. Now, imagine that Jewish men asking Jesus to teach them to pray. Now, Jewish boys and girls are raised knowing how to pray. 
since, since they start going to the synagogue. They have to learn to pray since they do their bar mitzvah and, and, and their, their, their different services. They know how to pray, yet they see Jesus praying in a way so different from anything they've learned. They see Jesus praying with such intimacy that they have to come to Him and say, Lord, we want to learn to pray like you pray. When you pray, things happen. When you pray, God works. Teach us to pray like you pray. And that's when Jesus says, pray this way. Our Father, who art in heaven. Not you, God, up there, but our Father. Intimate form of prayer. And He teaches the Lord's Prayer, and He teaches the disciples that whatever they ask, knock and you will receive, seek and you will find. You know, you remember that passage? I read it last week. Uh, when Kathy preached, but, but we read that passage. And we read that the Father gives the Holy Spirit to all those who ask Him for it. The main issue we're facing today, which is our issue, whether we like to admit it or not, is the issue of how earthbound we are. Is the issue of mammon, the God of riches and wealth and power over God. The issue of covetousness, which by the way, if you read or if you paid attention to Colossians reading, it says that covetousness is idolatry. You understand that? That when you covet, you're making that thing that you covet your God. Covetousness is idolatry. And so what we are seeing here as the issue is an issue of covetousness over godliness. It is an issue of being so attached to earth things that we ignore and neglect being heaven bound. Being heaven bound. We, all of us, all of us tend to be overly attached. And we put sometimes a lot more effort in accumulating goods for earth than we forget to put as much or more effort in preparing our, our hearts and our souls for heaven. So as Jesus is traveling to Jerusalem... He meets two brothers. Or he meets at least one brother. The young man cries out to Jesus and says, Lord, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. We may assume, I think rationally, that the other brother is there in the crowd as well. Otherwise, what's the point of Jesus saying, do this, if the brother is not going to believe it because he didn't hear it. So we may assume that the two brothers are there, but it may be the younger brother that is crying out for justice. Or perhaps in greed. And he says, Jesus, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. We don't know what the issue is. 
We don't know if this is the younger brother and the older brother has control of the inheritance. We don't know if the older brother just doesn't want to give the younger brother any part of the inheritance. He may be thinking, I'm the oldest. I took care of my parents. Where were you? You were just a kid. Whatever they left is mine. We don't know what the issue is, but we do know there is an issue of money between these two brothers. I have seen family members destroyed over inheritance. I have seen family members who grew up together with loving parents. When the parent dies and leaves one to be the executor of the state. I have seen a sister sue the other sister. Because she wasn't getting her inheritance fast enough. Or it may be that the younger sister was just holding back and holding back and holding back and wouldn't release it. But I today tell you that these two sisters do not any longer speak to one another. They're enemies, mortal enemies, over an inheritance. And I would say that lady who was a member of this church would die over a hundred times if she saw what's happening to her two daughters. Over earthly bound inheritance. And I have seen it happen in other ways as well. Money is not the problem. The love of money is the problem. When the love of money becomes covetousness, it becomes idolatry. It becomes our God. And it tends to divide us, not only from God, because sometimes money can divide us from God, but it tends to divide us from one another. Well, these two brothers, we don't know what the whole issue is, but we know that one of the brothers wants Jesus to step into a family squabble. Jesus is not interested in getting involved in a family squabble. So he basically says to, uh, to the brother, Why, who made me judge? I didn't come to this earth to, uh, to decide earthly stuff between you. I've come to this earth to bring you to heaven. To bring you to heaven. To show you heaven. To show you my Father. To lead you into the kingdom of God. Not continue this thing about being so earthly bound. Listen, how many of you have heard of people winning over a hundred million dollars in the lottery. And I know that many of you would love to do that. There's a friend of mine that has, used to have in his office a little plaque and he said, I've been poor, I've been rich, and rich is better. <laughs> but I also tell you that money can be the cause of the biggest destruction in families we have seen.
Lately, we have heard of some people winning major amounts of money. In fact, last night, someone won uh, over $200 million. How many families have we seen destroyed by winning the lottery? How many divorces have occurred because of someone winning the lottery? How many children have used some of the money they've received to get into some serious drugs and, and overdose? We can tell story after story. And you say to me, well, it doesn't have to be that way. Of course it doesn't have to be that way. But it is. Because money sometimes is the biggest destroyer of people. Having too much. So Jesus basically says to him, uh, beware of covetousness. And then he tells this parable. He tells them a story. Which I think it's, it's a very interesting story. It says that a rich man's land... So let's begin with those words. A rich man, already a rich man, he already had more than he could handle. He was already rich. Well, his land produces even more wealth to the point that whatever he had before, as far as where to store his gains, become too small of how he's getting blessed. And so he decides to start building bigger barns, bigger places to continue to add and add and add to the riches he already has. I am reminded of two things that I don't want you to, to miss. We read today from Ecclesiastes. Vanity, vanity, everything is vanity. Everything is like pursuing the wind. And, and I, as I read the beginning of, of Ecclesiastes, I realized it's being written by the king of Jerusalem. It's being written by Solomon, who calls himself the preacher. And he says, I've had so much money that I have everything I could possibly have. I wanted to build gardens, I built gardens. I wanted to have Mary and concubines, I did that. I wanted to, whatever it is he wanted, he wanted to go after every pleasure. He wanted to go after every understanding and every piece of wisdom. And he comes to the conclusion that his life is really vanity. Everything is vanity. Everything is a pursuit after the wind. Because anything you think you own actually owns you. And let me tell you this. If there's anything you own, you claim you own, my house, my car, my children, my career, it all can be gone like this. There is nothing you think you own that you cannot lose overnight. Nothing. The reality is we own nothing that we can't truly possess. We, we basically use it for a while, but it is, you know, like uh, I, I heard a preacher one time say, at the end of the game, all the pieces go back in the box. All the pieces go back in the box. 
One of the things that Solomon says is, I have toil, I have toil, I have worked so hard, and when I'm gone, everything I have will belong to another who did not toil for it and wasn't wise enough to get it, but I cannot take anything with me. Everything is vanity. Every pursuit of man is vanity. Only God is eternal. Only heaven matters. I love the way Colossians puts it. I, I, I think you, you might have missed it and I don't want you to miss it. Because Paul writing Colossians says these words. Listen carefully. He says, Christ is all. And in all. Those two words are immense. All the pursuits of life, Christ is all. He is all we need. He's all that matters. He's all we should be pursuing after. Because He's the only one that lasts. Everything else passes away. Christ is all and is in all of us. And I just don't want you to miss those words because they are the most powerful words, I believe, in that one letter of Colossians. Christ is all and in all. So Jesus tells this parable. He says that a rich man, his land produced even more. And he begins to say, well... I have so much. In other words, I made it. It's all mine. I can relax now. My soul, you have made it, my soul. Go ahead and, and enjoy it and be merry and, and be at rest because you have it all. You have more than anyone else. And your land keeps producing. It's my crop, my barns, my world, my money, my everything, is what this man says. And then Jesus says, that very night God said to him, you fool, tonight I will require your soul from you. Tonight I will require your soul from you. Then whose these things be which you have provided? You fool. You put your hope. You put your dependence. You put your trust. You put your effort on things that you can't keep. And things that, yes, you may enjoy here on earth, but they do not do anything for you for eternity. They do not do anything to get you closer to God. In fact, they make you feel that you are God. You own it. You possess it. You are dependent on yourself and yourself alone. And how blessed you've been or how lucky you've been or how smart you are. Or whatever it is that you're crediting. But your dependence is not on God. Your trust is not in God. And therefore your future is not in God. He says, you fool, you fool, tonight I will ask your soul to leave you. 
you're dying tonight. And Jesus, and, and he concludes with these words, So it is he who lays up treasure for himself, and is not rich toward God. Who's not rich toward God. And so I ask, I ask us to consider these words, what does it mean to be rich toward God? What does it mean to be rich toward God? And I came up with a few things that I would love to, for you to consider. Real riches toward God is having a heart and a mind that is focused on the eternal and everlasting God and on His Son, Jesus Christ. To be rich toward God is, is to have your heart and mind focused on what's eternal and lasting. To be rich toward God is having a heart and a mind that is focused on God's holy will and purposes as found in the Holy Scriptures. Because the reality is that the Word of God, the Bible, guides us away from everything that is natural and human to everything that is godly and that leads us to heaven. The Word of God is one of the most corrective things we can have in our lives. If we pay attention to it, if we let it guide us, it will guide us away from self-centeredness and earthly-mindedness into a relationship with a God that is the only thing that lasts. It will correct us, it will change us, it will transform us, it will add to us through riches. Through riches. The Word of God will make us rich in the Lord. To be rich toward God is having a heart and a mind that is focused on serving God and His purposes as long as we have life here on earth. To be rich toward God is to serve Him. It is to have grace and mercy and faith and service. I love the way that St. Paul writes it in, in, in Colossians. And he says, Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, lowliness, meekness, Patience, forbearing one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. I mean, you can read the whole of, of Colossians, and you can see what it means to be rich toward God. There was nothing wrong with a man being rich. I think what was wrong with a man wasn't his richness, it was his poverty toward God. It wasn't about the money. It wasn't about success. I think if, if, if the Lord blesses you with success in this life, use it for the Lord. There's nothing wrong with success. There's everything wrong with being poor toward God. Poor in godliness. Poor in giving God your life, your heart, your attention, your service. 
The Lord blesses some people with great wealth. And I, I don't think, listen, I think rich people have it harder sometimes in godliness than us. Rich people sometimes are more in danger of the danger of money and riches on the soul than people who are just normal persons. Money sometimes can destroy us and lead us in ways that are not necessarily godly. So Jesus tells these two brothers that are fighting over inheritance. He tells them, and I believe he tells us, that to be earthly minded is just going to lead us into division and destruction. But to be Christ minded, it will teach us to be in unity. Unity with God, unity with Jesus, and unity with one another. Because Jesus is all and in all. Jesus is all and in all. I think that's what this story is about. I think that's what, what this story is about. Heavenly riches is something that, that we ought to be more preoccupied with than earthly riches. If there is a symbol of America, if there is a symbol of America, it's that we are one of the wealthiest nations in the world. Everything about America is money. Everything about America is... Listen, if you compare the third world with America, we are the richest people in the world. Our houses are ten times bigger than anybody else's houses around the world. The symbol of America is our wealth. We are a blessed nation like this man was. The problem is, is America God-fearing or is America abounding in its own pursuit of more and more and more and more? Are we God-bound? Are we humble before the Lord? Are we in love with God and, in what, and with one another? Consider, consider your life. Consider if your soul was required of you this evening. Are you heaven bound? Consider the effort that you are putting in your relationship with God. Is Jesus all for you? Is Jesus in you. Just consider this parable and consider the teaching of Jesus. Stand with me, please.